Amen. We are excited that you're here today at Grace, and I want to give a shout out to those at uh, each of our different locations. We have four amazing congregations, and all of them have come together today to worship our Lord Jesus Christ. We're so glad that you're here. I asked a member of our Grace family recently that I happened to know was going through some, some tough family situations. I asked her, what is your level of hope right now in this current situation? And then that led to some really meaningful discussion about that. But let me ask you that same question. What is your current level of hope? Maybe you've had a loved one die, and this Christmas is going to be the first Christmas where there's going to be an empty chair around the table. What is your level of hope right now? Or maybe your business has taken a bad turn, and you're struggling there, and you honestly don't know what to do about that. Or maybe you have a family member or friend whose life is just spinning out of control and they're making one bad decision after another. And although you've tried to reach out, tried to share, tried to ask questions and show love, no one seems to be able to really get through and reach them. Or maybe you're troubled over the state of our country. Maybe you look at the moral slide in America or the cultural changes or perhaps where you believe we're going politically or whatever and you may be concerned. What is your current level of hope? Hope is certainly one of the major themes of Christmas. Most of us have high and hopeful expectations as Christmas approaches. A little girl climbed into Santa's lap and Santa asked the usual question, and what would you like for Christmas? And the little child with open mouth and a horrified look waited a minute and finally said, didn't you get my email? <laughs> we all need something to hope for. That's why the psalmist said, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. And Christmas reminds us that no matter how difficult our situation, there is always hope in God. Now, if you're going through a particularly rough season right now in your life, I urge you to listen very carefully today. Because you see, there's no greater source of hope than the resurrection of Jesus. Those early disciples stumbled down Golgotha's hill filled with disillusionment, bitterness. All their hopes were dashed. The one they had thought was the Messiah, the one they had placed their hopes in was now dead and they had no idea what the future held. All their hopes had now been bathed in despair. But the reality of the resurrection changed all of that for them and the risen Christ is still changing lives today. So I want us to jump in here. We're going to look at some verses in chapter 23 and then 24 of Luke's gospel. And I want you to see three different disciples or groups of disciples 
who had transforming experiences. And like them, no matter what we're going through, we can have our hope renewed in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He's got a word that he wants to speak to you today, and it is, hear me, it is a word of hope. First of all, I want you to see Joseph of Arimathea, who used his sphere of influence wisely. I'm beginning in chapter 23, verse 50. Now, there was a man named Joseph a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Now, Joseph of Arimathea's name is mentioned in the Bible only in reference to the burial of Jesus. It doesn't show up anywhere else. But each of the four Gospels tells us something about this man, Joseph of Arimathea. For instance, Matthew's Gospel says he was wealthy. Mark tells us that he was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. That was the group of Jewish leaders, 70 plus of them, who ruled the nation. (laughs) The most powerful leaders in the nation of Israel. He was one of them. And then Luke tells us here that he had not voted against Jesus. That's interesting. He had been a dissenter when the vote came. Perhaps he stood there and told them why, or perhaps he was absent. We don't know. But John's gospel says that Joseph was a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jews. But after Jesus died, Joseph became bolder. He went public with his faith. He finally concluded that his commitment to Jesus mattered more than his reputation with his colleagues. No matter what it cost him, he was going to stand up and be identified with Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now, Luke doesn't mention Nicodemus, but John's gospel reminds us that Nicodemus actually joined and partnered with Joseph of Arimathea, and Nicodemus was the one who had, he was a fellow member of the Sanhedrin, And he had come to Jesus at night, as recorded in John 3, and Jesus had talked to him about the critical nature of being born again, born from above, if he was ever going to see the kingdom of heaven. Well, he brought 75 pounds of spices to anoint the body of Jesus. Now, please keep in mind, Jesus died at 3 p.m. on a Friday, and the Sabbath began at 6 p.m. on that Friday. So these men had just two hours to try to prepare Jesus' body for burial. They had to really be hurried under a lot of pressure. If nobody claimed the body of a crucified victim, the body was typically left for the vultures and the wild dogs to devour. Joseph was not going to let that happen. So seeing his opportunity, Joseph boldly approached Pilate and he asked permission to remove the body of Jesus from the cross and give it a proper 
burial. Jesus was going to be buried in a tomb cut out of the rock, a tomb that Joseph had actually purchased for himself. But after Jesus died, although he had been timid earlier, after Jesus died, he suddenly decided to muster the courage to act and to use his sphere of influence and do what he could for Christ. Now, my sense is that in a church like Grace, there are a number of Joseph of Arimathea types. These are women and men of influence. No, they may not have their name on the church board. Uh, they may not lead some ministry in the church or uh, even be well known in the church. They may not be leading a small group, but they are genuine followers of Christ. They're true believers in their heart, and God has given them a sphere of influence that is significant. Please hear me today. Just like Joseph of Arimathea, if that's you, you can make a huge impact. It may be that this Christmas Eve, you just invite a friend or a coworker to church on one of our Christmas Eve services. I think we have three at every location. There's gonna be 12 services to choose from. Imagine that on Christmas Eve, 12 services. Invite them to a service. There's gonna be some wonderful music. I'm gonna preach a brief but very pointed and powerful gospel message. It could be that God would use that service to be a moment in time for them that God would change their life forever. God may remind you that since what we're about in this church is the greatest endeavor in the world, and it is, the stakes are so high, the gospel message is so important, he may nudge you to give the biggest end of year gift you've ever given in your life. And you do it for his name and for his glory to make a difference. Or God may prompt you in the new year to kind of come out of the shadows a little bit and say, you know what? God has given me so much influence and leadership ability, perhaps. Maybe God wants me to join in in more active service and involvement, or maybe even to lead a brand new endeavor for him. Just like Joseph, what you do for the Lord can be invaluable. Second here, I want you to see in Luke 24, a group of disciples who witnessed to what they had seen and heard. And by the way, that's the call of every disciple of Jesus, to be a witness, someone who comes and sees and then goes and tells. Verse one reads, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Now, these women mentioned here have faithfully followed Jesus for virtually his entire ministry. We don't know all of their names, but if you skip down to verse 10, you get a few of the names. It, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. Mark's gospel mentions another woman. Her name was Salome. So get the picture here. There are a group of four or five women, possibly more, 
who before it's even daylight are heading out to the tomb. They want to go and complete the preparation for burial that had to be cut short because the Sabbath was beginning on Friday at 6 p.m. And so they go to complete the task. It's interesting to me that all four of our Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the Bible, all four of them mention women as the first witnesses of the resurrected Christ. Now, why would I mention that? I think that's very significant because if you were just fabricating a story, if you were just making it up, you would never in this particular culture have women as the first eyewitnesses. That wouldn't lend credibility because they would not even have been allowed in this culture to be admissible as a witness in a court of law. But the writers of scripture recorded it just as it happened. And the truth is that this group of women were the first to discover that the tomb was empty and that Christ was risen. They go to the tomb, and even though they don't know if they're going to be able to get inside, they don't know if there's going to be anybody who can roll the stone away or if they'll even get to do what they hope to do, they go because love has a way of continuing to hope even when hope seems almost futile. And when they arrived, they discovered that something totally unexpected had occurred. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Not only was the stone rolled away, but these Roman soldiers that had been posted there as guards to keep grave robbers from robbing the grave, they were gone as well. And verse 4 says, while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. These are obviously two angels. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? That's one of my favorite phrases in the Bible, by the way. How powerful. Why do you look for the living among the dead? It's one of the many great questions posed in Scripture. He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. Now, I want to go down one little side road here for just two or three minutes because I'm always concerned that Christians be able to give a good reason for the hope they have, to be good apologists for the faith, if you will. And there are many skeptics who will say to Christians, look, how can you really trust the Bible when there are so many contradictions in the gospel story? And they will often point to the resurrection accounts in the different gospels and say, look, they say different things. How can you know what to believe? And if you've never been asked that question, trust me, one day you will. Some skeptic, someone who's a cynic perhaps, or maybe they're just an honest doubter, will ask you that question. I mean, for instance, Luke and John's gospels say there were two angels. But Matthew and Mark only mention one angel. How can that be? 
And Luke says that Mary Magdalene and the other women saw the empty tomb and left to tell the disciples. But John's gospel says Mary Magdalene lingered behind and was the first person to actually see Jesus alive. So how can we be sure the Bible accounts are accurate when each gospel gives such different details and they can seem upon a cursory reading to be contradictory? Well, that's a good question and you need to have a good answer if you're a Jesus follower. Well, first of all, I want you to know this wasn't noticed last year or 10 years ago or 100 years ago. The early Christians immediately, once the Gospels had been written down, they immediately saw that they had different details in them, but they decided that was actually a good thing. So they resisted the temptation to do two things. One was to immediately try to harmonize them and just have one Gospel. There was actually a heretic who tried to do that in the second century. His name was Tatian, and he wrote the diatessaron. That Greek word, diatessaron, literally means through the four. It was the first attempt we know of to try to harmonize the Gospels. But the church rejected that effort. They also rejected the temptation to say, look, since we have different details here, let's just get rid of three of them. Let's pick the one we want to keep, and let's just keep one. And let that be the story. They rejected that as well. The fact that the stories are a bit different, the early Christians said, makes the whole thing more believable. Just as if we saw something happen, each of us would tell it with different details from our own personal perspective, the things that stood out to us. I personally believe, having studied this carefully for many years, that the gospel accounts can be harmonized in the following order. The women, including Mary Magdalene, went to the, early, to the tomb early in the morning. And as soon as they discovered the body was missing, Mary Magdalene, being a sanguine, very excitable personality, rather impulsive, and we know that from other things she did in the gospels, she immediately runs back by herself back into Jerusalem to share this news. And she leaves the other women behind at the tomb. They go in the tomb. They stay around. Two angels appear, but only one of the angels spoke and told that Jesus was alive. It would be similar to this. Let's say a visitor visits Grace, and out in the lobby after the service, the visitor shakes hands with the campus pastor and with myself, and then he goes home and says, I met two pastors at Grace Fellowship. Would that be accurate? Of course. But let's say another visitor comes, and after the service, out in the lobby, he shakes the campus pastor's hand, and he shakes my hand, and he goes home and says, hey, I I met the pastor at Grace Fellowship. Would that be accurate? Yes, it would. He's just telling the story from a personal perspective. One writer says, two angels. Another mentions only one angel. I take it the angel he's mentioning is the one that's talking. Mary Magdalene rushes toward Jerusalem. She finds Peter and John, tells them the tomb is empty. They then both begin to race toward the tomb. John gets there first because he's the youngest and the fastest. Mary trails behind. 
And by the time she arrives, they have already gone. She stands around by herself, perplexed and troubled. And it's at this point that Jesus makes his first personal appearance, and it's to Mary Magdalene. But she doesn't recognize him. She has such grief. When he asks her what she's grieving about, she says, they've taken the body of my Lord, and I don't know where they've put it. She doesn't even look up. And then Jesus just speaks her name, Mary, and she immediately recognizes that voice. By the way, I have this happen all the time to me. It literally happened just this past Friday. People who've heard me preach maybe many times, they don't recognize my face. But as soon as I start talking, they go, oh my goodness. It literally happened on Friday as Deb and I were together and met with someone It wasn't until I spoke that he recognized, oh my goodness, I know who you are. And that's what happened here. He called her by name. She fell at his feet and embraced him. And then Jesus left and appeared to the other women as they were making their way back to Jerusalem. And I believe it all blends together very, very well. As a Jesus follower, you just need to know that. But all these women, and here's the point I want you to get, they went from total despair to exuberant hope in a matter of minutes. And if you're having trouble getting hope this Christmas, maybe you would do well to follow the example of these women. If you're having trouble having the hope of the resurrection in your life and really being a believer, I would suggest that they did some things we need to do. First, They checked out the evidence. They didn't ball up in a fetal position in the upper room and check out. They didn't go uh, party with the skeptics and the enemies of Christ and medicate their pain. They went to the place where hope was most likely to be stimulated. And I would simply say to you in a very pointed, but I hope compassionate way, If you lack hope or faith in Christ, but you never really go to church, you never really listen to any Christian podcast, you never read the Bible or any Christian books, and the only people you ever hang out with are all skeptics, I think it's very unlikely that you will ever bolster faith in Christ because you're not checking out the evidence. Go deliberately where faith and hope are alive and contagious. And second, these women listen to authentic testimony. When these two angels appeared and one of the angels said he's risen, they recognized, wow, they've got information that we're not privy to. And while we probably won't see angels, we do have authentic believers all around us who are giving dynamic testimony to how Jesus is still changing their lives today. I'm one of them. You've got them sitting all around you today. You've got people all around you that Jesus is in their life and changing their life for the better. Listen to some of those testimonies. Third, they remembered and reflected on the words of Christ. Verse six said, he's not here, he's risen. Remember how he told you? 
while he was still in Galilee. And then it gives some of the words that Jesus had told them. And it was only then that they go, oh yeah, now we remember. Now we get it. He did say that, didn't he? A hurried executive picked up a big box of Hallmark Christmas cards and she quickly signed about 20 of them and addressed them to some friends and family members. And she just quickly, in her Christmas hurry, dropped them off at the post office into the mail without ever reading the message inside. When she got home, she still had a few cards left, and she decided she would finally read the message that was inside the cards she sent. And the message simply said, this is just a little note to say that a little gift is on its way. Sometimes we get in trouble when we forget certain things. And Jesus had told his followers, look, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be raised from the dead, but they had forgotten that and they had lost their hope. But the angel said, remember. And if you're struggling with faith or with hope today, I urge you again to reflect on the words of Jesus. Remember what he said in his word. That the one who believes in me, that even though he or she dies, they're still going to live. Because they've got this eternal life, this eternal hope in me that will never fade away and never be taken away. That's why the Bible says that faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. And finally, they believed and acted on the evidence they had. These women didn't have proof. They hadn't seen the risen Christ yet, but they did see the empty tomb. They did see the stone rolled away. They did see the grave clothes and the angels, and they believed based on that evidence. Listen, if you're waiting for 100% clarity and assurance and somehow to prove that Jesus was resurrected, you're never going to pull the trigger. You have to make a choice when only part of the evidence is in. You need to act on the evidence you have. Verse 9 reads, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. Somebody said the Easter mandate is always come and see and then go and tell. And as these women began to go and tell what they had seen and heard, not only did others believe, but it also bolstered their own faith as well. Well, there's one final thing I want you to see here. Luke talks about a group of disciples who battled their doubts. That may shock you or surprise you to think that a disciple of Jesus, a true follower, a true believer, would actually battle doubt at times but it happens. Verse 10, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. The Greek word used there is a word used in the medical world by doctors to describe the babbling of a fevered, insane person. I take it 
that these women were so excited at the empty tomb, so excited at what they had experienced. They were all trying to talk at the same time, and it just seemed too incredible to believe. But verse 12 says, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. I like that phrase. Peter went away wondering to himself what had happened. He didn't yet believe. He didn't yet have total hope. But hope was starting to be kindled in his life. And that's where some of you are today. You can't honestly say that you've crossed over the line of truly believing and being a convinced follower, but hope and belief is being kindled in you. Peter was making that transition between despair and hope, but he still had his doubts. Do you remember that time when a father came to Jesus and asked him if he would heal his son, his little son? And Jesus asked him if he believed that he could heal him. And the man said, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And Peter still has some unbelief here. He saw the grave clothes. He saw the empty tomb. But he wondered, could this really be true? Peter's hopes and the disciples' hopes, however, were baptized in confidence and certainty that very night when Jesus appeared to them personally in the upper room. John's gospel records, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands inside and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Friends, they discovered that day that Jesus is victorious over death and that Jesus is the king of hope. You know what? I believe I'm talking to some people right now who want to believe. You really do. But you're battling doubts. Your faith is infused with quite a bit of doubt. Maybe you used to believe that God had a positive future for your marriage, but your spouse has really let you down badly. They've left you jaded, quite frankly, and you don't know if you can hope for a good future anymore. Let me ask you a question. Could it not be that the one, the God who raised Jesus from the dead has the ability to actually rekindle love and romance? in your marriage, and to really make a difference. Just like the angel Gabriel said to Mary, nothing is impossible with God. I believe I'm talking to some people today who are maybe struggling with self-worth. And the reason is because you violated your own values over and over again. And the truth is, you feel cheap, phony, hypocritical. But could it be that the God who raised Jesus from the dead could actually give you self-dignity and worth again? Maybe there's a couple here today whose hopes for a family are dead. Your hearts just ache to hold a little baby of your own in your arms. 
but currently that seems impossible. Don't you think that the same God that raised Jesus from the dead can reverse infertility or provide a way for adoption or provide many open doors for ministry with children to make an impact in their lives? Perhaps you've had a crisis with your personal health. And that diagnosis not only disappointed you, but honestly, if we're just keeping it real, it left you reeling with doubts about God. Does God even love me? How could he let this happen to me? And you're so disappointed because it's just not the way you wanted your life to be. Could it be that the God who raised Jesus from the dead could change your situation and dramatically, dramatically transform your prognosis as you move into the future? And some of you have recently buried a loved one, and that makes this Christmas season particularly difficult for you. You stood over that grave, life became a blur. Could it be that the God who raised Jesus from the dead could actually bring joy, hope of a glorious reunion one day with your loved one for those who are trusting in Christ alone? That's why Simon Peter, you see, that's why when he saw those grave clothes there in the empty tomb, and when he later saw the risen Christ, that's why he later wrote these words, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, oh, I love this phrase, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you have that living hope today? Sandy Wiley shares the story of a woman named Anne and something that happened in her life during World War II, and I find this story particularly moving. A woman named Anne took her two little children to Texas to be with Anne's parents because her husband was stationed in World War II. He was in the Air Force, and he was stationed in Europe. And so they prepared for Christmas. They got the tree put up and decorated, all the decorations around. And all the presents were bought and wrapped and kind of hidden away just for the right moment. They were enjoying the wonder of Christmas and trying to put aside all the worries of the war. But then just one week before Christmas came that dreaded knock on the door and the Air Force official, and now Anne had to share the dreadful news with her two little sons that daddy was not coming home for Christmas, ever. And afterwards, she went up to her room just to kind of weep alone. And grandma and grandpa began to talk. And they took down the Christmas tree and the decorations and just put them all outside. But when Ann later came out of her room and saw the empty place, she said, Mother, what have you done? And she said, well, your, your dad and I just got to talking, and we thought, oh, you're so brokenhearted. This is, 
this is no time for Christmas. Anne said, oh no, mom. Bring back the decorations. Bring back the tree. Christmas was made for times such as these. And maybe you're having a particularly tough season this Christmas. I want you to know Christmas was made for times such as these. And if you trust in Jesus Christ and give your life to him and look to him daily as your hope, you can have a living hope because he is resurrected from the dead and that makes all the difference in the world. That's what Christmas is all about. Father, thank you that Jesus our Lord is risen from the dead and that that makes all the difference. Not only Christmas, but every day of the year can be infused with hope and wonder and promise and joy because we have a living hope through our Lord who has been raised from the dead and is alive forevermore. May we look to you today and trust in you and rely on you alone as our source of strength and joy and hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.